Chapter Nine, Part B of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Nine, Part B. Julien came in to dinner in a very good temper and full of plans for his wife's pleasure. Won't your father and mother come and stay with us this year? He said. Jeanne almost forgave him his infidelity. So grateful was she to him for making this proposal. She longed to see the two people she loved best after Paul, and she passed the whole evening in writing to them and urging them to come as soon as possible. They wrote to say that they would come on the 20th of May. It was then the 7th, and Jeanne awaited their arrival with intense impatience. Besides her natural desire to see her parents, she felt it would be such a relief to have near her two honest hearts, two simple-minded beings whose life and every action thought and desire had always been upright and pure she felt she stood alone in her honesty among all this guilt she had learnt to dissimulate her feelings to meet the comtesse with an outstretched hand and a smiling face but her sense of desolation increased with her contempt for her fellow-men every day some village scandal reached her ears which filled her with still greater disgust and scorn for human frailty the Couillard's daughter had just had a child, and was therefore going to be married. The Martin's servant, who was an orphan, a little girl only fifteen years old, who lived near, and a widow, a lame, poverty-stricken woman, who was so horribly dirty that she had been nicknamed La Crotte, were all pregnant, and Jeanne was continually hearing of the misconduct of some girl, some married woman with a family, or of some rich farmer who had been held in general respect. This warm spring seemed to revive the passions of mankind, as it revived the plants and the flowers. But to Jeanne, whose senses were dead, and whose wounded heart and romantic soul were alone stirred by the warm springtide breezes, and who only dreamed of the poetic side of love, these bestial desires were revolting and hateful. She was angry with Gilbert, not for having robbed her of her husband, but for having bespattered herself with this filth. The Comtesse was not of the same class as the peasants, who could not resist their brutal desires. Then how could she have fallen in to the same abomination? The very day that her parents were to arrive, Julien increased his wife's disgust by telling her laughingly, as though it were something quite natural and very funny, that the baker, having heard a noise in his oven the day before, which was not baking day, had gone to see what it was, and instead of finding the stray cat he expected to see, had surprised his wife, who was certainly not putting bread into the oven. The baker closed the mouth of the oven, went on Julien, and they would have been suffocated if the baker's little boy, who had seen his mother go into the oven with the blacksmith, had not told the neighbours what was going on. He laughed as he added, That will give a nice flavor to the bread. It is just like a tale of La Fontaine's. For some time after that, Jeanne could not touch bread. When the post-chaise drew up before the door with the baron's smiling face looking out of the window, Jeanne felt fonder of her parents and more pleased to see them than she had ever been before. But when she saw her mother, she was overcome with surprise and grief. The baroness looked ten years older than when she had left Les Peuples six months before. 
Her huge, flabby cheeks were suffused with blood. Her eyes had a glazed look, and she could not move a step unless she was supported on either side. She drew her breath with so much difficulty that only to hear her made everyone around her draw theirs painfully also. The baron, who had lived with her and seen her every day, had not noticed the gradual change in his wife, and if she had complained, or said her breathing and the heavy feeling about her heart were getting worse, he had answered, Oh, no, my dear, you have always been like this. Jeanne went to her own room and cried bitterly when she had taken her parents upstairs. Then she went to her father and, throwing herself in his arms, said, with her eyes still full of tears, Oh, how changed mother is! What is the matter with her? Do tell me what is the matter with her. Do you think she is changed? asked the baron in surprise. It must be your fancy. You know I have been with her all this time, and to me she seems just the same as she has always been. She is not any worse. Your mother is in a bad way, said Julien to his wife that evening. I don't think she's good for much now. Jeanne burst into tears. Oh, good gracious, went on Julien irritably. I don't say that she's dangerously ill. You always see so much more than is meant. She is changed, that's all. It's only natural she should begin to break up at her age. In a week, Jeanne had got accustomed to her mother's altered appearance, and thought no more about it, thrusting her fears from her, as people always do put aside their fears and cares, with an instinctive and natural, though selfish, dislike of anything unpleasant. The baroness, unable to walk, only went out for about half an hour every day. When she had gone once up and down her avenue, she could not move another step, and asked to sit down on her seat. Some days she could not walk even to the end of the avenue, and would say, Let us stop. My hypertrophy is too much for me today. She never laughed as she used to. Things which the year before would have sent her into fits of laughter, only brought a faint smile to her lips now. Her eyesight was still excellent, and she passed her time in reading Corinne and Lamartin's Meditations over again, and in going through her souvenir drawer. She would empty on her knees the old letters which were so dear to her heart, place the drawer on a chair beside her, look slowly over each relic and then put it back into its place. When she was quite alone she kissed some of the letters, as she might have kissed the hair of some loved one who was dead. Jeanne, coming into the room suddenly, sometimes found her in tears. "'What is the matter, Mamma, dear?' she would ask. "'My souvenirs have upset me,' the Baroness would answer with a long-drawn sigh. "'They bring to my mind so vividly the happy times which are all over now, and make me think of people whom I had almost forgotten.' I seem to see them, to hear their voices, and it makes me sad. You will feel the same later on. If the baron came in and found them talking like this, he would say, Jeanne, my dear, if you take my advice, you will burn all your letters. Those from your mother, mine, everyone's. There is nothing more painful than to stir up the memories of one's youth when one is old. But Jeanne, who had inherited her mother's sentimental instincts, though she differed from her in nearly everything else, carefully kept all her old letters to form a souvenir box for her old age also. 
A few days after his arrival, business called the baron away again. The baroness soon began to get better, and Jeanne, forgetting Julien's infidelity and Gilbert's treachery, was almost perfectly happy. The weather was splendid. Mild, starlit nights followed the soft evenings, and dazzling sunrises commenced the glorious days. The fields were covered with bright, sweet-smelling flowers, and the vast, calm sea glittered in the sun from morning till night. One afternoon, Jeanne went into the fields with Paul in her arms. She felt an exquisite gladness as she looked now at her son, now at the flowery hedgerows, and every minute she pressed her baby closely to her and kissed him. The earth exhaled a faint perfume, and as she walked along she felt as though her happiness were too great for her. Then she thought of her child's future. What would he be? Sometimes she hoped he would become a great and famous man. Sometimes she felt she would rather he remained with her, passing his life in tender devotion to his mother and unknown to the world. When she listened to the promptings of her mother's heart, she wished him to remain simply her adored son. But when she listened to her reason and her pride, she hoped he would make a name and become something of importance in the world. She sat down at the edge of a ditch and studied the child's face as if she had never really looked at it before. It seemed so strange to think that this little baby would grow up and walk with manly strides, that these soft cheeks would become bearded, and the feeble murmur changed to a deep-toned voice. Someone called her, and looking up, she saw Marius running towards her. Thinking he had come to announce some visitor, she got up, feeling vexed at being disturbed. The boy was running as fast as his legs could carry him. Madame, he cried when he was near enough to be heard, Madame la Baronne is very ill. Jeanne ran quickly towards the house, feeling as if a douche of cold water had been poured down her spine. There was quite a little crowd standing under the plane tree, which opened to let her through as she rushed forward. There, in the midst, lay the baroness on the ground, her head supported by two pillows, her face black, her eyes closed, and her chest, which for the last twenty years had heaved so tumultuously, motionless. The child's nurse was standing there. She took him from his mother's arms and carried him away. "'How did it happen? What made her fall?' asked Jeanne, looking up with haggard eyes. "'Send for the doctor immediately.' As she turned, she saw the curé. He at once offered his services, and turning up his sleeves, began to rub the baroness with eau de cologne and vinegar. But she showed no signs of returning consciousness. "'She ought to be undressed and put to bed,' said the priest. And with his aid, Joseph Cuillard, old Simon and Ludivine tried to raise the baroness. As they lifted her, her head fell backwards, and her dress, which they were grasping, gave way under the dead weight of her huge body. They were obliged to lay her down again, and Jeanne shrieked with horror. At last an armchair was brought from the drawing-room. The baroness was placed in it, carried slowly indoors, then upstairs, and laid on the bed. The cook was undressing her as best she could when the widow Dantou came in, as if, like the priest, she had smelt death, as the servants said. Joseph Cuillard hurried off for the doctor, and the priest was going to fetch the holy oil when the nurse whispered in his ear, 
You needn't trouble to go, Monsieur le Curé. I have seen too much of death not to know that she is gone. Jeanne, in desperation, begged them to tell her what she could do, what remedies they had better apply. The curé thought that anyhow he might pronounce an absolution, and for two hours they watched beside the lifeless, livid body, Jeanne unable to contain her grief, sobbing aloud as she knelt beside the bed. When the door opened to admit the doctor, she thought that with him came safety and consolation and hope, and she rushed to meet him, trying to tell him in a voice broken with sobs all the details of the catastrophe. She was walking, like she does every day, and she seemed quite well, better even than usual. She had eaten some soup and two eggs for lunch, and quite suddenly, without any warning, she fell and turned black like she is now. She has not moved since, and we have tried everything to restore her to consciousness, everything. She stopped abruptly, for she saw the nurse making a sign to the doctor to intimate that it was all over. Then she refused to understand the gesture and went on anxiously, "'Is it anything serious? Do you think there is any danger?' He answered at last, "'I very much fear that, that life is extinct. Be brave and try to bear up.' For an answer, Jeanne opened her arms and threw herself on her mother's body. Julien came in. He made no sign of grief or pity, but stood looking simply vexed, he had been taken too much by surprise to at once assume an expression of sorrow. "'I expected it,' he whispered. "'I knew she could not live long.' He drew out his handkerchief, wiped his eyes, knelt down and crossed himself as he mumbled something, then rose and attempted to raise his wife. She was clinging to the corpse, almost lying on it as she passionately kissed it. They had to drag her away, for she was nearly mad with grief, and she was not allowed to go back for an hour." Then every shadow of hope had vanished, and the room had been arranged fittingly for its dead occupant. The day was drawing to a close, and Julien and the priest were standing near one of the windows, talking in whispers. The widow Dentu, thoroughly accustomed to death, was already comfortably dozing in an armchair. The curé went to meet Jeanne as she came into the room, and taking both her hands in his, he exhorted her to be brave under this sorrow and attempted to comfort her with the consolation of religion. Then he spoke of her dead mother's good life, and offered to pass the night in prayers beside the body. But Jeanne refused this offer, as well as she could for her tears. She wanted to be alone, quite alone, with her mother this last night. "'That cannot be,' interposed Julien. "'We will watch beside her together.' She shook her head, unable to speak for some moments, then she said, she was my mother, and I want to watch beside her alone. Let her do as she wants, whispered the doctor. The nurse can stay in the next room. And Julien and the priest, thinking of their night's rest, gave in. The Abbe Picot knelt down, prayed for a few moments, then rose and went out of the room, saying, She was a saintly woman. In the same tone, as he always said, Dominus Vobiscum. Won't you have some dinner? asked the vicomte in a perfectly ordinary voice. Jeanne, not thinking he was speaking to her, made no answer. You would feel much better if you would eat something, he went on again. Let someone go for papa directly, she said, as if she had not heard what he said, and he went out of the room to dispatch a mounted messenger to Rouen. 
Jeanne sank into a sort of stupor, as if she were waiting to give way to her passion of regret, until she should be alone with her mother. The room became filled with shadows. The widowed and too moved noiselessly about, arranging everything for the night, and at last lighted two candles, which she placed at the head of the bed on a small table covered with a white cloth. Jeanne seemed unconscious of everything. She was waiting until she should be alone. When he had dined, Julien came upstairs again and asked for the second time, "'Won't you have something to eat?' His wife shook her head, and he sat down looking more resigned than sad, and did not say anything more. They all three sat apart from one another. The nurse dropped off to sleep every now and then, snored for a little while, then awoke with a start. After some time, Julien rose and went over to his wife. "'Do you still want to be left alone?' he asked. She eagerly took his hand in hers. "'Oh, yes, do leave me,' she answered. He kissed her on the forehead, whispered, "'I shall come and see you during the night,' then went away with the widow Dentu, who wheeled her armchair into the next room. Jeanne closed the door and put both windows wide open. A warm breeze, laden with the sweet smell of hay, blew into the room, and on the lawn, which had been mown the day before, she could see the heaps of dry grass lying in the moonlight. She turned away from the window and went back to the bed, for the soft, beautiful night seemed to mock her grief. Her mother was no longer swollen as she had been when she died. She looked simply asleep, only her sleep was more peaceful than it had ever been before. The wind made the candles flicker, and the changing shadows made the dead face look as though it moved and lived again. As Jeanne gazed at it, the memories of her early childhood came crowding into her mind. She could see again her mother sitting in the convent parlour, holding out the bag of cakes she had brought for her little girl. She thought of all her little ways, her affectionate words, the way she used to move, the wrinkles that came round her eyes when she laughed, the deep sigh she always heaved when she sat down, and all her little daily habits— and as she stood gazing at the dead body, she kept repeating, almost mechanically, She is dead. She is dead. Until at last she realized all the horror of that word. The woman who was lying there, Mamma, little mother, Madame Adelaide, was dead. She would never move, never speak, never laugh, never say, Good morning, Jeanette. Never sit opposite her husband at the dinner table again. She was dead. She would be enclosed in a coffin, placed beneath the ground, and that would be the end. They would never see her again. It could not be possible. What? She, her daughter, had now no mother. Had she indeed lost forever this dear face, the first she had ever looked upon, the first she had ever loved, this kindly loving mother, whose place in her heart could never be filled? and in a few hours even this still unconscious face would have vanished, and then there would be nothing left her but a memory. She fell on her knees in despair, wringing her hands and pressing her lips to the bed. "'Oh, mother, mother, my darling mother!' she cried in a broken voice which was stifled by the bed covering. She felt she was going mad, mad like the night she had fled into the snow." She rushed to the window to breathe the fresh air which had not passed over the corpse or the bed on which it lay. The new-mown hay, the trees, the wasteland, and the distant sea lay peacefully sleeping in the moonlight, 
and the tears welled up into Jeanne's eyes as she looked out into the clear, calm night. She went back to her seat by the bedside and held her mother's dead hand in hers, as if she were lying ill instead of dead. Attracted by the lighted candles, a big, winged insect had entered through the open window and was flying about the room, dashing against the wall at every moment with a faint thud. It disturbed Jeanne, and she looked up to see where it was, but she could only see its shadow moving over the white ceiling. Its buzzing suddenly ceased, and then, besides the regular ticking of the clock, Jeanne noticed another, fainter, rustling noise. It was the ticking of her mother's watch, which had been forgotten when her dress had been taken off and thrown at the foot of the bed. And the idea of this little piece of mechanism, still moving, while her mother lay dead, sent a fresh pang of anguish through her heart. She looked at the time. It was hardly half-past ten, and as she thought of the long night to come, she was seized with a horrible dread. She began to think of her own life, of Rosalie, of Gilberte, of all her illusions, which had been, one by one, so cruelly destroyed. Life contained nothing but misery and pain, misfortune and death. There was nothing true, nothing honest, nothing but what gave rise to suffering and tears. Repose and happiness could only be expected in another existence, when the soul had been delivered from its early trials. Her thoughts turned to the unfathomable mystery of the soul, but as she reasoned about it, her poetic theories were invariably upset by others, just as poetic and just as unreal. Where was now her mother's soul, the soul which had forsaken this still cold body? Perhaps it was far away, floating in space, but had it entirely vanished like the perfume from a withered flower? Or was it wandering like some invisible bird freed from its cage? Had it returned to God, or was it scattered among the new germs of creation? It might be very near, perhaps in this very room, hovering around the inanimate body it had left, and at this thought Jeanne fancied she felt a breath as if a spirit had passed by her. Her blood ran cold with terror. She did not dare turn round to look behind her, and she sat motionless, her heart beating wildly. At that moment the invisible insect again commenced its buzzing, noisy flight, and Jeanne trembled from head to foot at the sound. Then as she recognized the noise she felt a little reassured, and rose and looked around. Her eyes fell on the escritoire with the sphinx's heads, the guardian of the souvenirs. As she looked at it she thought it would be fulfilling a sacred filial duty, which would please her mother as she looked down on her from another world, as she might have done a holy book during this last watch. She knew it was the correspondence of her grandfather and grandmother whom she had never known, and it seemed as if her hands would join theirs across her mother's corpse, and so a sacred chain of affection would be formed. Between those who had died so long ago, their daughter who had but just joined them, and her child who was still on earth. She opened the escritoire and took out the letters. They had been carefully tied into ten little packets which were laid side by side in the lowest drawer. A refinement of sentimentality prompted her to place them all on the bed in the baroness's arms. Then she began to read. They were old-fashioned letters with the perfume of another century about them, such as are treasured up in every family. 
The first commenced, My dearie. Another, My little darling. Then came some beginning, My pet. My beloved daughter. Then, My dear child. My dear Adelaide. My dear daughter. The commencements varying as the letters had been addressed to the child, the young girl, and later on to the young wife. They were all full of foolish loving phrases and news about a thousand insignificant homely events which to a stranger would have seemed too trivial to mention. Father has an influenza. Hortense has burnt her finger. Crocorat the cat is dead. The fir tree which stood on the right-hand side of the gate has been cut down. Mother lost her mass book as she was coming home from church. She thinks someone must have stolen it and they talked about people whom Jeanne had never known, but whose names were vaguely familiar to her. She was touched by these simple details which seemed to reveal all her mother's life and inmost thoughts to her. She looked at the corpse as it lay there, and suddenly she began to read the letters aloud, as though to console and gladden the dead heart once more, and a smile of happiness seemed to light up the face. As she finished reading them, Jeanne threw the letters at the foot of the bed, resolving to place them all in her mother's coffin. She untied another packet. These were in another handwriting, and the first ran thus. I cannot live without your kisses. I love you madly. There was nothing more, not even a signature. Jeanne turned the paper over, unable to understand it. It was addressed clearly enough to Madame Le Baron Le Pertuis des Vaudes. She opened the next. Come tonight, as soon as he has gone out. We shall have at least one hour together. I adore you. A third. I have passed a night of longing and anguish. I fancied you in my arms, your mouth quivering beneath mine, your eyes looking into my eyes and then I could have dashed myself from the window as I thought that, at that very moment, you were sleeping beside him, at the mercy of his caresses. Jeanne stopped in amazement. What did it all mean? To whom were these words of love addressed? She read on, finding in every letter the same distracted phrases, the same assignations, the same cautions, and at the end always the five words, Above all, burn this letter. At last she came to an ordinary note, merely accepting an invitation to dinner. It was signed, Paul Denemar. Why, that was the man of whom the Baron still spoke as poor old Paul, and whose wife had been the Baroness's dearest friend. Then into Jeanne's mind came a suspicion which at once changed to a certainty. He had been her mother's lover, with a sudden gesture of loathing, she threw from her all these odious letters, as she would have shaken off some venomous reptile, and running to the window, she wept bitterly. All her strength seemed to have left her. She sank on the ground, and, hiding her face in the curtains to stifle her moans, she sobbed in an agony of despair. She would have crouched there the whole night, if the sound of someone moving in the next room had not made her start to her feet. Perhaps it was her father, and all these letters were lying on the bed and on the floor. He had only to come in and open one, and he would know all. 
She seized all the old yellow papers, her grandparents' epistles, the love letters, those she had not unfolded, those that were still lying in the drawer, and threw them all into the fireplace. Then she took one of the candles which were burning on the little table, and set fire to this heap of paper. A bright flame sprang up at once, lighting up the room, the bed, and the corpse with a bright flickering light, and casting on the white bed curtain a dark, trembling shadow of the rigid face and huge body. When there was nothing left but a heap of ashes in the bottom of the grate, Jeanne went and sat by the window, as though now she dare not sit by the corpse. The tears streamed from her eyes, and hiding her face in her hands, she moaned out in heartbroken tones, Oh, poor mamma, poor mamma. Then a terrible thought came to her. Suppose her mother, by some strange chance, was not dead. Suppose she was only in a trance-like sleep, and should suddenly rise and speak. Would not the knowledge of this horrible secret lessen her, Jeanne's, love for her mother? Would she be able to kiss her with the same respect, and regard her with the same esteem as before? No, she knew it would be impossible and the thought almost broke her heart. The night wore on, the stars were fading, and a cool breeze sprang up. The moon was slowly sinking towards the sea, over which she was shedding her silver light, and the memory of that other night she had passed at the window, the night of her return from the convent, came back to Jeanne. Ah, oh, how far away was that happy time! How changed everything was! and what a different future lay before her from what she had pictured then. Over the sky crept a faint, tender tinge of pink, and the brilliant dawn seemed strange and unnatural to her, as she wondered how such glorious sunrises could illumine a world in which there was no joy or happiness. A slight sound startled her, and looking round she saw Julien. "'Well, are you not very tired?' he said. No, she answered, feeling glad that her lonely vigil had come to an end. Now go and rest, said her husband. She pressed a long sorrowful kiss on her mother's face, then left the room. That day passed in attending to those melancholy duties that always surrounded death. The baron came in the evening and cried a great deal over his wife. The next day the funeral took place. Jeanne pressed her lips to the clammy forehead for the last time drew the sheet once more over the still face, saw the coffin fastened down, and then went to await the people who were to attend the funeral. Gilberte arrived first, and threw herself into Jeanne's arms, sobbing violently. The carriages began to drive up, and voices were heard in the hall. The room gradually filled with women with whom Jeanne was not acquainted. Then the Marquise de Coutillier and the Vicomtesse de Briseville arrived and went up to her and kissed her. She suddenly perceived that Aunt Lisson was in the room, and she gave her such an affectionate embrace that the old maid was nearly overcome. Julien came in dressed in deep mourning. He seemed very busy and very pleased that all these people had come. He whispered some question to his wife about the arrangements, and added in a low tone, It will be a very grand funeral. All the best families are here. Then he went away again, bowing to the ladies as he passed down the room. Aunt Lisson and the Comtesse Gilberte stayed with Jeanne while the burial was taking place. The Comtesse repeatedly kissed her, murmuring, Poor darling, poor darling! And when the Comte de Fourville came to take his wife home, 
He wept as if he had lost his own mother. End of chapter 9, part B.